you know, as we look at the question throughout the book of Philippians, the letter of Paul to the Philippian church, is true happiness possible? Think with me how many hours are spent nationwide, uh, and, and remember, many of the nations of the world don't celebrate Thanksgiving, so this is fairly, you know, it's a pretty kind of exclusive holiday uh, to our nation, but think of all the hours. I, I would venture to say probably millions of hours are spent in preparation for Thanksgiving weekend. But even still, even with all the, you know, the favorite foods and, uh, the, you know, the decorations and trying to make everything just right for that special Thanksgiving celebration, it still can't guarantee that everyone is going to enjoy it. Still can't guarantee that around your table or around your, your living room that it's always just going to be laughter and happiness. Um, in fact, because we're humans, it's very common for even in those very tailored and very specific celebrations for there to be moments of exhaustion, frustration, sadness. So we come back to the question, is true happiness possible? Well, in Philippians 4, 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Paul is encouraging the Philippian church that, yes, this is possible. True happiness is possible. Now, one of the questions that's answered right from the get-go, is it based on your situation? Well, Paul is writing this. Is he writing this after a huge Thanksgiving feast and, and from a resort? What do you think? Is that, is that where Paul is writing this from? He's writing it from prison. Most likely in Rome. It's not exactly clear uh, what imprisonment or where he was at, but most likely for some of the things that he says, it seems to indicate that he was uh, in Rome. But Philippians 1.7 reminds us of kind of his setting and where he was at. It says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you, all, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul's just saying, you know, right, right out, listen, I'm in a bad place in a way. But thankful for you for being partakers and partners with me in that. Even in verses 12 through 14, the same chapter, Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That seems to be an indication of probably where he's at, probably in Rome. And all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And a few verses later in Ephesians 1, or I'm sorry, in Philippians 1.20, it says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as is always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And most of us, I think you would uh, agree with me, I enjoy a comfortable Thanksgiving. I mean, I, I enjoy a, a comfortable life. But yet, that's not going to bring us true happiness. Uh, Paul was in prison. The main theme of this letter throughout the, throughout the letter is to remind them, listen, true happiness is possible, but only through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can uh, really understand this. It's repeated like 16 times. Four short chapters, but it's repeated 16 times throughout the, the book. And I think Paul wanted the Philippian church to understand and grasp this truth. Several years ago, we had a, a chance. We visited a church, give an update on our ministry in Brazil. And 
uh, a, a generous church member of that church gave us some free passes to Disney World. And we, I had been to Disney World as a kid, but uh, our kids had not. So some of the kids were with us, others were, I think, were at college. Uh, but we went to, to Disney World for a day, and there's, one of their slogans is, where dreams come true. But you know, throughout the day at Disney World, it seemed like instead of where dream, dreams come true, it seemed like it was like where nightmares happened. I mean, there were still kids that were screaming. And I remember, especially at night, you know, at the end of the day, and we'd had a great day, and we were, we were getting ready for the fireworks, and people were shoving, trying to get into places, and, and dragging kids, you know, like, and then they were screaming, and like, where dreams come true. Really? Now, Disney World is a fun place to be, and is. In a lot of countries that I've traveled to, that's, that's kind of a dream for people to come and visit. And I always laugh. I, I think there's more Brazilians that have been to Disney World than, than Americans. I mean, they, they love that. And they would ask us, have you been to Disney World? Like, well, up until that point, not a whole lot. But it's not always where dreams come true. Because that's not what's going to bring true happiness. Just this last week, our older girls, um, as they are coming into you know, their adulthood and making their decisions, they left us for Thanksgiving, but uh, they went on a cruise. Well, you maybe can't blame them for that. And as you go on a cruise, I want to I show you, in fact, uh, they didn't go on this cruise, okay? They didn't go on this one. But as you go on a cruise, cruise ship companies, cruise companies like you know, the World Caribbean, they do everything they can to make it a very pleasurable and happy experience. This is one of their newest uh, cruise ships that's going to come out, probably to be finished at the end of 2023, most likely going to uh, set for sale on uh, January 23rd, 24th of 2024. We'll have tickets, uh, half price off, Black Friday sale after the service. I'm just kidding. But it, look at this. Does that look fun? To Mike's like, nope, nope, I'd rather be doing a lot of it. To me, it looks like a lot of fun. I mean, I think there's, there's the, a water park, a floating water park. So instead of going to a resort and being in one place, you can go to a cruise ship and like go visit places but have this resort at the same time. There's eight different neighborhoods, they call them. Wow. Um, five, from 5,500 people up to 7,500 people can board this cruise ship and enjoy you know, this, this setting. So you've got the, the wave pools, you have the water park. Of course, you see the, the sports court there. They have a climbing wall. I'm sure they have all kinds of restaurants, you know, beauty salons, and, and different things. This is $1.5 billion trying to guarantee whoever goes on it that they're going to have a good time. But I'm going to ask you a very difficult question. Do you think on that very first uh, as they set for their, you know, their, their, their first sale, do you think there's going to be anybody that during that week period, as they're on the icon of the seas, one and a half billion dollar cruise ship, do you think anybody's going to be unhappy at some, time, at some point? Absolutely. I can guarantee you, in fact, and I'm not even a prophet, but I can tell you, yes, there are going to be some unhappy people on a ship that is geared for your happiness and for luxury and for your enjoyment, one and a half billion dollars worth of it, there's still going to be people that say, yeah, I'm, I'm done. And I think, you know, our girls, I think they had a good time. They, most of the time they didn't have Wi-Fi covered, so we really haven't seen many pictures. 
But yesterday, as they were stranded in the ocean along with many other cruise ships because of the fog in Tampa, Coast Guard closed the port, and so cruise ships were just waiting out in the ocean, hoping to come in. I think they were delayed probably about eight hours or so to come into port. I guarantee you there were a lot of unhappy people. After they had spent money and gone on a cruise ship and had a good time and visited some neat sites, but yet at the end of the day and at the end of the trip, I'm sure there were a lot of arguing, a lot of complaining, a lot of crying, a lot of upset people. So is true happiness based on your situation? Well, we see it's not. It's not. Nothing can guarantee our happiness outside of Christ. Now, second question, is it based on success? When Mike was a little bit younger, he would ask me, he said, Dad, what are you going to do when you grow up? I'm like, well, I, I am kind of grown up, son. But, I mean, in his, mind, in, in his mind, sometimes he would ask me, Dad, what do you do for a job anyway? I mean, you know, he would hear, hear his friends talk about stuff. And, and uh, even as we were, this was, I found funny, but even as we were moving to Atlanta to start a church, and we had told churches and met with individuals, you know, casting the vision. And at one point, uh, you know, Mary said, yeah, I... I think we're going there. I think Dad got a new job or something. It's like, well, okay. But what is, what is success? What is your future? And Mike would ask me, what are you going to do when you grow up, Dad? Now, let me, if I were to ask you, or if I were to ask a, a room full of students, which often this room is, and ask them, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? What's your dream job? And some of you have in your mind, man, my dream job would be You're doing something now, but you may say, no, my dream job would be, would you say, I want to be a servant. That's what I want to be. I want to be a servant. Probably not. But as we see here, as Paul writes to the Philippian church, is it based on success? Well, we must choose the right position. And number one, they were servants. In Philippians 1.1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants, of Christ Jesus. So Paul and Timothy both had the understanding that yes, first and foremost, it's not success even in ministry. It's not, you know, all that we can do. It's not success financially. It's not success in my hobby. But first of all, the right position that we have and should pursue as followers of Jesus Christ is that we would be his servants. Paul and Timothy says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. They were servants, but they were also saints. In the same verse, Philippians 1.1, it says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Now, a little side note. Normally, when you see the word saints in Scripture, it's plural. I think just a little indication that God intends for our Christian life not to be lived alone. And not for us to any, any one person, any one believer or saint to elevate himself above another, but to say, you know, we're, we're all saints, not because we truly are saints, but because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So we're servants, just like Paul and Timothy were, of Jesus Christ. And we're saints. We have been redeemed, we've been changed, we've been reconciled to Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Another apostle, and in another letter, as we've learned in the 30 Days Understanding the Bible, this would be a general epistle or general letter. But it says, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are saints for a purpose. We are saints with a specific task. And Peter makes it clear, and Paul does all throughout his Pauline epistles. He says, listen, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. It's a letter written to the Corinthian church. Was the Corinthian church perfect? Was the Corinthian, were, were there saints in the Corinthian church? Yes, because of Jesus Christ. Not because of necessarily how they acted every day. But even to the Corinthian church, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, in verses 17 and 18, we'll read through verse 21 actually, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So because of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done, that's why we can become saints. Continue on in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for glory you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Paul, again, just as Peter says, hey, we are a chosen nation, we're a royal priesthood, and that is to proclaim his excellencies. Paul is is basically doing the same thing. He says, we implore you, we beg you, we plead with you on behalf of Jesus Christ that you would be reconciled to God. Then notice verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is amazing. If you stop to think about it, that even the hymn, the old hymn, Jesus paid it all. And he took upon himself all of our sins. Think how difficult it is for you as one individual to bear the guilt of just your sins. Sometimes it seems overwhelming. Sometimes it's hard to really believe the verse in Romans 5.20 where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But Jesus Christ came willingly and took upon himself the sins of every single person to offer the gift of redemption to all who would believe. John the Baptist in John 1.29 makes it clear we can only become saints because the Lamb of God, it says in 1.29, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. That is why we can become the saints of Jesus Christ. So we must choose the right position. We also must choose the right perspective. Who is our supervisor? You might be thinking, well, uh, let's see, I think his name is John. No, no. No, who is our supervisor in life? Sometimes you students, you may knowledgeably or mentally, you may think, well, ultimately God is my ultimate authority. But in practice, students, college students, young adults, middle-aged adults, and even older adults, sometimes we look to other people for approval. 
We want other people to approve of what we do and approve of how we are and to give that sense of acceptance and belonging. But Paul and Timothy, Philippians 1, verses 1 through 3, several phrases here, they, they say they're servants of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, it says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, it says, I thank my God. So again and again, they're pointing back to our supervisor is Jesus Christ. They're not looking to the Philippian church for acceptance. They're not even looking to the other apostles saying, you know, I hope next time we get together at the, you know, at the apostles' gathering, if they had such things, I hope that you know, we will be esteemed as effective apostles. No, they said, we want Jesus Christ to be happy. We are his servants first. And the same is true with you. Kids, I hope that most importantly, yes, that you obey your parents and that you honor them, but even beyond that, that you look to honor Jesus Christ. And if you seek to honor Jesus Christ, then you will be honoring and respecting your parents. If all you do is conform outwardly, then you have forgotten who is really your, your, your chief supervisor. Adults, if all we do is try to, to, to please our, our job supervisor or the group that we, you know, our peers, and we try to get acceptance from them, we have failed to remember that first and foremost, Jesus Christ is our supervisor. He's the one that I need to say, like Paul, I am in this for Christ. I'm not in it primarily so that, so that other people can affirm of my ministry or my life or what I think, but most importantly, Jesus, are you pleased? Am I pleasing you? So we must choose the right perspective. Who is our supervisor? Secondly, who is our Savior? Philippians 1, 2, in verse, verses 1 and 2, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, notice some of the, of, of the possessive words here. So we've already looked at these phrases, but I want to look, focus on a little bit different word. From God, our Father, verse 2. Then verse 3, I thank my God. Paul was not a servant of Jesus Christ just because he chose that as a profession. One time I was talking with a neighbor uh, that lived next to us in Sao Paulo, and he was, he was not a believer, um, and he, he made, you know, a, 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 unfortunately, a somewhat accurate description of much of the evangelical community. And he says, you know what? I think people have found a product, and they're just selling it. And that product is Jesus. I said, Fabio, I said, man, I'm, so, I'm sorry that that's been your perception. And many have done that. And I said, I'm very sorry, but that is not the true message of Jesus Christ. He is so much more. And in fact, he's not a product. He's a person. And this is all about a relationship with Jesus. Paul didn't choose and Timothy didn't choose this as a profession of, hey, I think we might be able to do pretty well in life as, as apostles and as pastors. No, they said, this is our Savior. This is my God. This is our God. This is our personal Savior. We see that that is the decision that every one of us have to make. I think many of you have made that, but if you haven't, I plead, just in, in, as in the verse in Corinthians, I plead with you, I beg you to be reconciled to God. Without it, you will never experience true happiness. I guarantee it. One and a half billion dollar cruise ship, whatever may, may, you may think will make you happy, I'll tell you now, it won't. 
It won't. It's a dead-end street. But if Jesus Christ is your Savior, even in the midst of great difficulty, sadness, and poverty, you can experience true happiness in Him. Another thing that we must choose is we must choose the right partnership. The right partnership, right partnership with God, Philippians 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer. Now, I want to stop here for a minute. Paul understood, listen, I can't, even as, as powerful and as effective and as influential as he was an, as an apostle, he understood just what I write and just what I do cannot alone change people. And that's why I'm going to pray to my God. And that truth is still the same for us. As much as we plead, as much as we beg, as much as we share the truth, we need to remember we are in partnership with God. Remember 1 Corinthians 3 says that we are God's co-workers. I feel pretty privileged to have God as a co-worker. He got the raw end of the deal, but I'm, I'm thrilled, man, that I can say, God, I'm working together with God. And because of that, I can look at situations and go, I don't think I could ever change that person, but I can pray to a God who can. And I'm going to do exactly that. And that's what Paul did. He partnered with God. And Paul could have, you know, at this moment, Paul could have prayed for a lot of good things. Where was he again? Remind me, where was Paul? He was in prison. Could Paul have convinced himself, boy, I could be so much more effective. I could have such a broader ministry if I was out of prison. So I'm going to first pray that God would release me from prison. That wouldn't be a sinful thing. But Paul didn't pray that. Paul could have prayed for numerical growth in the Philippian church. He could have said, man, you know, I'm praying that the, numer- that the Philippian church will just explode with growth. And that you, you'll have to get a new meeting place, and you'll have to do different service times. And I don't know how they did that all, all back then. I'm sure it was very different than what we do now. But Paul could have prayed for a lot of good things. He could have prayed for campus growth for the Philippian church. Hey, I want the Philippian church to, to open a new, a new satellite Philippian church. Philippi Dois, you know, Philippi 2. But he didn't. He prayed for godly things. Notice with me what he prayed for. His main concern was that the Philippian believers would have, one, the right attitude of love. The right attitude of love. He prayed for godly things. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul dedicated the majority of an entire chapter to this subject of love. The Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decided that's pretty important. Philippians 1.9, it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's, that's what he starts with. He says, listen, I'm praying that your love would abound more and more. I want you to have the right attitude. Colossians 3.14, another letter to a different church. And he says, and above all these, put on courage. No. And above all these, put on thankfulness. Nope. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As we grow in our love of Jesus Christ, you remember the greatest commandment of all in Matthew. Jesus says, the greatest commandment is that I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, that I love my neighbor as myself. 
Paul says this is the attitude. Also to the Galatian church in Galatians 5.22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit and the very first fruit from which the others flow out of, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Then comes joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. John 13.35, By this all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have a lot of good things and you're, you're rich and you're successful. Is that what it says? People are going to know you that you're my disciples. He says, if you have what? Love. That is the key factor. And Paul says, this is what I pray for. That your love would abound more and more. Now, I want, to, I want you to notice this. The next thing is very telling on common evangelical community today. Love is emphasized plenty, and it should be, but together with what we're going to see next. Notice Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9 again. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. How? With knowledge. So in essence, with truth, I want your love to abound more and more, but not just this general love, not just a love that, you know, well, just accepts everything. No, I want your love to abound more and more, but with knowledge. And then he goes on, in all discernment, the idea of taking the knowledge we have, taking the truth, and applying that to, to normal, everyday things, to have discernment, to have God's wisdom, to seek what his heart and mind is about everything that we do. I want you to have all love with knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. Several weeks back, we looked about, unfortunately, how many churches have been swallowed into the mindset of, you know, love first and everything follows. And, and love is the most important thing. It is as long as it's coupled with biblical truth. When you begin to separate the two, then it's not true love anymore. Then really it's deception. And we're doing a disservice to anybody that we say, hey, I love you, but I'm going to let you stay in your sin because that's going to destroy your life. But I'm not going to say anything because I love you. No, true love is going to say, hey, there's a better way. And God has a plan for you, and he wants to redeem your life and give you a true purpose. That's the type of love with all knowledge so that we can approve the things that are excellent. Growing up, uh, we, some, many times for our birthdays, we would be given the choice, where do you want to go out to eat? Well, as a kid, my favorite restaurant was Long John Silver's. I, and I have not eaten Long John Silver's in years. I'm sure I would enjoy it. But as a kid, that was my very favorite restaurant. So when June 6th came, or June 7th rather, came around, my birthday, my parents say, okay, David, where do you want to go eat to eat? My brothers knew what my favorite restaurant was. So in the background, they're like, Pizza Hut, Pizza Hut Steakhouse or something, come on. And we're like, I'm really thinking Long John Silver's. They're like, no, no. And I would say, hey, Dad, Mom, can we go to Long John Silver's? I'm like, sure. They love that choice, pretty economical. But as I, as I grew up a little bit, as I had more experience, as I went to, to a few more restaurants in addition to Long John Silver's, I began to understand, you know, there's some pretty other good options out here. So as I got older, my choices began to change according to knowledge and discernment in a silly way, and spiritually, the same should happen, but on a whole other level. As we continue to grow in Jesus Christ, as we continue to love him more, then that knowledge should transform how we live. 
Not out of duty, but out of saying, listen, these are things that Jesus loves. And because Jesus loves those and I love him, that's how I want to live. I love Kim a lot, very much. I mean, I'm not very poetical, so you fill in the brain of whatever flowery words you can put in there. But I love her a lot. So in the 26 plus years of marriage, I'm trying to learn more and more what are some things that pleases her? What are some things that she enjoys of how to express that love back to her? The same thing should happen with every one of us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, what pleases you? What makes you happy? What shows you that I'm grateful, that I want to live my life back in return for you? Well, Paul says that we should live according to knowledge. Third, thing he prayed for was right character. Philippians 1.10, the latter part of that says, and so, so this is all after what we've just read about love and knowledge, discernment, approving what's excellent. Why? So that be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The right character. The right character. As we bought our home, as a new construction home, and there was an appliance allowance, I learned some things through that experience. When I first saw, you know, you have an appliance allowance, I thought that we were going to be able to choose our appliances with the money that they had set aside. It was very wrong. They chose the appliances, and I think probably didn't spend 75% of our appliance allowance and got some of the appliances, especially our dishwasher, is not very high quality. So it's pretty common. In fact, if you eat over, we won't be offended. If you grab a fork and you lift it up and there's still a little bit of crud and you go, nah, I'm going to turn this back in. That's fine. You won't, you won't you know, offend us. Because I don't want to eat with a fork, even if it has just a little bit of crud on it, but it's already gone through the dishwasher. I'm not going to say, oh, that's probably not too bad. And I don't think you will either. The next time, or if you've never had surgery, or if you do go into surgery, I don't think if you go into surgery and the doctor comes in, and he's pretty clean, most, you know, most of it is pretty clean, but on his white lab coat, he's got some, some spaghetti stains from supper you know, the night before. I don't think you're going to be too excited to let him grab a scalpel and begin to cut you open. You're going to want to say, hey, do, do, do you want to you, you change? I remember being at a, in a grocery store one time, and we, we got some sandwich meat, and the lady had on gloves, and she was getting sandwich meat ready, but then she proceeded to blow her nose, and she blew her nose with the tissue, and then threw the tissue away, and then went back to get the sandwich meat, and I just, all of a sudden, I had no more appetite for the sandwich meat, and I said, you know what? I've changed my mind. Thank you, and I just walked away. I, I did not want, even though maybe just a little bit of that wouldn't have gotten in my sandwich meat, but that was enough. And Christ Jesus says, you know, we shouldn't be satisfied with just a little bit of sin, just a little bit of, you know, wickedness. God, help me to be pure. Help me to be blameless. No, we're not perfect. No, we'll never be perfect. But as we seek to be a follower of Jesus Christ and not the world, as we are servants and saints, our desire is to be, God, I want to be blameless in your sight. Not to be a super Christian. Not so that other people will lift me up. But God, I want to please you because I love you. Must choose the right character. Next, the right lifestyle kind of goes hand in hand with this. Philippians 1.11, it says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ 
to the glory and praise of who? Of God. That's our motivation. The idea here of being filled, this gives an idea of continuous action, a lifestyle that produces glory to God. Christ, in John 15, he teaches that the only way that this is possible is as we stay or abide in him. Notice with me in John 15, a couple verses here, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Then he says it again in another way. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Some things? Nothing. But but boy, boy, do we try. Man, we try to do things in our own power, and I do, I do too. And I have to remind myself, God, help me to pursue a lifestyle that is rooted in Jesus Christ. It's not rooted in my past. It's not rooted in a tradition that I grew up in. It's not rooted in a duty that I have to fulfill. But it's rooted in a lifestyle that I want to live back for your honor and for your glory. It's the right lifestyle. You know, think about, as, as we think about um, Thanksgiving, if there were any more than, than a couple people at your house or wherever you gathered, most likely there was some form of a line to go through and get your Thanksgiving food. Pretty, you know, pretty common. You could smell the food. You could be looking at the food. You could desire to eat the food. But if you did not stay in that line, you weren't going to get any of it. And spiritually, we can be around spiritual things. We can kind of see things, spiritual things in a distance and truths. But unless we are abiding in Jesus Christ, then it's not going to happen. We're not going to have a lifestyle that pleases him. So we have to choose a partnership with God. But secondly, we see a partnership with others. Philippians 1 verses 3 and 4 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul, you know, expresses thankfulness for personal fellowship. For personal fellowship. I I would not, uh, I've determined in the times that I've traveled, and I've had to be away from family at different times, but I've determined I would not be a good long-term traveler away from family. I just don't do well. I, I, I like to be you know, with people, and so I, I don't do well at that. And spiritually, none of us should do well apart from other believers, and especially apart from a local body of Jesus Christ. Paul, throughout his whole ministry, you rarely ever see Paul alone. Rarely ever. It's always Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Epaphroditus, Paul and Luke, Paul and a a number of other believers. Because Paul understood, yes, I'm in partnership with God, but I'm also in partnership with God's family. And that's all that are around me so that we can serve God together. He's thankful for personal fellowship from this Philippian church. And I hope you are too. I hope that that as you miss that, that you long for that personal fellowship. As we have said so many times, and I'll say it again, I pray that, that this gathering will never become just an event for you. 
yeah, I go to, I go to church. I hope that you do a whole lot more than just go to church. I hope that you come to be with your church, to be with your local body of Christ. This isn't always possible, but you'll notice even in some of the wording that I use in emails and things, I try not to say a, a much, and sometimes it's hard to avoid, but I try not to say a whole lot at one hope. I try to say with one hope. Now that's kind of well, quirky, Pastor. Well, I think the importance is we're a family. Sometimes we gather here. Sometimes we might gather at your home. Sometimes we may gather at a park. And sometimes we may be around a coffee table. But we are to be the church so much more than just this event, this gathering on Sunday morning. And Paul says, I'm thankful for personal fellowship. Notice, secondly, though, in verse 5, he says, I'm thankful for persistent fellowship because he says this, because your partnership in the gospel, and notice this, from the first day until now. From the first day until now. I love sports. I don't follow sports a whole lot. I enjoy playing them more than I do watching them, but I enjoy sports. But I do know one thing. In college and professional football, if the coach is not winning very much, he can be pretty sure that he's going to lose his job at some point. They're not going to go, oh, but, you know, we like you. You're a friendly guy. The guys seem to enjoy you too. No, pretty soon they're going to be, hey, you're out, man. You're not winning. But yet the Philippian church, through, through it all, they were faithful in their partnership with Paul. Acts 20, verses 6 through 12, we won't read it, but Paul raised Eutychus from the dead not long after spending time in Philippi the first time. The beginning of the church, Paul raised, Paul raised Eutychus to the dead. That's, that's pretty powerful. I'm sure that made kind of headlines back in the day. That did, did, you, did you hear what Paul did? We see in Acts 28 that after surviving a, ship, a shipwreck, the chief man on the island was named Publius. He provided lodging for Paul and for some of the companions for about three days. When Paul learned that Publius' father was sick, Paul went and healed him of a fever, hemorrhaging, so once again, man, this, this is pretty cool. This is, man, this is big stuff. Paul's raising people from the dead. He's, he's healing people. Acts 28 also tells about how Paul healed other people on the island who were sick. You know, the Philippians, during this time, it could have been a very exciting thing to partner with Paul the Apostle. Hey, let's send, you know, let's send money, let's send finances and investments, and let's pray for this Paul. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing people from the sick. This Paul is an amazing guy, but now, in Philippians 1.7, he's in jail. Not raising anybody from the dead, not, not healing anybody from sickness, yet the Philippians are still there. And Paul says, I'm thankful that from the first day you were partners with me in the gospel, and even now, you're still partners with me in the gospel. I pray that this will be a model for us as a church with those that we partner with. But I pray even more specifically, this will be a model within personal friendships and relationships within our local church. That even when somebody's doing great and they're doing well and you enjoy their company and there's maybe even some mutual you know, enjoyment there that, that you'll be faithful then, but also when that individual or that family is going through extremely difficult times. I pray that you and I will be just like the Philippian church and say, hey, we're still here. 
Because we love you, we're partnering with God, but we're partnering with you, and it's a persistent fellowship. This isn't just when it's all fun and games, but we're there in the hard times, too. Thankful for personal fellowship, for persistent fellowship. Verse one, chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you all, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Listen, family, we have got to stay together. Because in our culture today, there is a lot of defending that needs to happen. Amen? We are bombarded. We're, we're bombarded in, in every direction. And if we don't stick close, if we don't stay together, if we don't model this type of relationship with God and with others, boy, we are doomed because we can't do it alone. And we have to and we get to the privilege of staying together in this type of persistent fellowship. But notice lastly also, Paul was thankful for a promising future. Philippians 1 verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. You know, as you live and do life with me, you're living with a sinner. As Kim spends her life with me, and as the kids grow up in my home, they're growing up in a home of a sinner. They have a father that's a sinner. As I gather together with you on Sunday mornings and maybe in your homes and other times during the week, guess what? I'm gathering together with other sinners. But the promising future is, instead of focusing on, boy, that person has trouble here and with that and with that attitude and these, in these areas, we can focus on the promising future that God, who is faithful, who has begun a good work in, of redemption in Logan and Josh and Marco and Dan and April and Mike, and I could list all of your names that know Christ as your Savior, I could say, as Christ began that good work in you, he will complete it. That's the promising future. As we studied several months back, we looked at the relationships book, and you may remember it says relationships, a mess worth making. Generally, we don't think about a mess being a good thing. But the authors, I feel like, did a very good job of portraying that relationships can be messy and difficult and challenging, but there's some things that God uses to build all of us up in Him. And even though we're sinners... To be able to look at someone with grace and say, I still love you. And I hope that as, I, as my sins become evident, I hope that you still will love me and help me to grow in Jesus Christ. We have the promise in Romans 8, 28 through 30. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also, and I love the last part of this verse. I'm not a grammar Nazi, but notice with me the tense of the verbs in the descriptions in the last part of this. And those whom he predestined, he also called, past tense. Those whom he called, he also justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. It's such a done deal that God, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used a past tense word to say, you will be glorified. As God began a good work in you, he will complete it. 
And so we have a promising future. As we do life together, as we see evidences of, yeah, yep, they're still sinners and I'm still a sinner, but we can show grace and we can say, but thank God that he's going to complete a good work in me and he's going he's to complete a good work in and point your finger at anybody else that you may be struggling with at the moment. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish this morning?